Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home... He calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and he is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked him what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me. 
and all that is mine is yours. But it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It truly is a joy uh, to be here with you. I am uh, Excited to open the Word of God together with you, and as uh, Tommy said, I would agree with all that sentiment. I, was, I have many fond memories of our time together in Wheaton uh, as we grew in pastoral work and as Christy and I prepared for the mission field while I was doing my doctoral studies. Uh, I'll just tell a, a brief memory I have of one evening leaving Tommy and Precious's home with my wife, Christy. It was already dark. It was, it was getting late, and we just had our, our oldest son. He was just a few months old. And so I was trying to carry him down the driveway, you know, trying not to move him too much to wake him up and then buckle him into the car seat. Some of you know that drill all too well. And uh, one thing you need to know for this story, our, our, uh, our son was born with a, with a cleft lip, so he had a really um, specialized retainer that the doctors had made to help his um, jaw bones develop. And that retainer, uh, according to the medical bill, cost $10,000. Uh, and we were at that moment in the middle of a dispute with the insurance company about who would be paying that $10,000. Um, I've got lots of stories about the Lord's provision during that time that we'll have to wait for another time. Uh, all you need to know for this story is that was the single most expensive piece of plastic I have ever held in my hand. It was worth more than my credit card. Um, and so as I'm buckling my son in to the car seat in the dark, I look down, no retainer. And now every once in a while, as a baby, he would pull it out and drop it or even throw it. And so Christy and I start retracing our steps down the driveway. And we pull out our cell phones. And these are the days before cell phones actually have a flashlight on them. So maybe you remember you have to unlock the screen and kind of awkwardly aim it where you want to look and then keep on tapping so it doesn't go dark and hope you don't accidentally dial 911 or something like that. Um, so we, we look around, no luck. Tommy comes out. He's got a bigger and brighter cell phone because he's Tommy. And uh, so he's helping us. And eventually Precious comes out. She has an actual flashlight because she's Precious. And uh, so all four of us are just combing the driveway, the grass, the gravel on the street. And no sign of this retainer. We, we go back into the house. We look retrace our steps everywhere, and we just can't find it. It's the middle of the night, we're exhausted, and it's evident we're simply not going to find it in the dark. So we agree, we're just going to go home, call it a night. I'll come back first thing in the morning, and maybe in the daylight I'll, I'll find it somewhere. And so we get home, Christy and I are exhausted, we're frustrated. Frankly, we're quite anxious about the money. And there on my desk on a pile of open books is the retainer. And the only explanation is that I had put it there and as an absent-minded professor slash sleep-deprived dad simply forgotten about it sometime earlier in the day. And I am mortified at this wild goose chase that I have just caused for my wife and my two dear friends. And I'm almost too embarrassed to even tell my wife. <laughs> but I hold it up to her and she says, I don't even care where it was or how it got there. I am just so happy we found it. And maybe you know that feeling. It is a, a universal human experience. And it's the plot of just about every great novel, opera, or movie. 
Something valuable is lost, be it a ring, pirate's treasure, a kingdom, a relationship. It is pursued at great cost, and then the joy in its recovery outshines both the joy that it brought initially as well as the cost of finding it. And that is the plot of the three parables that Jesus tells in rapid succession. Something is lost, it costs a lot to find it, but the joy is greater yet. And so as Jesus tells us these three parables, and and especially tells the Pharisees who were watching his party, he invites all of us to embrace the joy of restoration. Embrace the joy of restoration. And so to see how that works, I'm going to trace out three key themes that are common to all of these parables. The value, the cost, and the joy. And then we're going to look at how these themes relate to the major characters in the last parable, the father and his two sons. Now, first of all, as we look at parables, one one little pro tip for studying parables is it's often helpful to look for the surprises. Jesus tells parables about everyday things, catching fish, a farmer planting seeds, uh, a father and his sons, sheep. These are all common everyday experiences, but there's always some sort of a twist or an exaggeration, like a a caricature or a, a political cartoon. And whatever that exaggerated or surprising element is, is usually a sort of a clue to what the parable is about or one of the important themes. And so as we look at these this series of three parables, one of the first surprises that we see is actually the relative lack of value of the lost thing. Just look at the, at the first one. Which of you having a hundred sheep? Now, a, a very rich person might have a hundred sheep in Jesus' day. A king could have thousands. But most of the Galilean peasants listening to Jesus' sermon would have 10, maybe 20, if that. And so if you had 100 sheep, you'd, you'd be quite happy with that. And if you lost one, that's well within the margin of error. You know, that, that is, a, that is a, a loss that I could live with, a 1% loss. Now, the value increases with each successive parable. So one coin out of 10, that's a 10% loss. That's, that, you feel that a little bit more, but you could live with that. A lot of businesses would be happy if they just lost 10% in a bad year. Of course, with the son, he's one of two, yet at the same time, it's not the heir, it's the younger one, and it's not the obedient one, it's the rebellious one, and if you ask the older brother at least, the family is probably just as happy without that one. And so even there, relative lack of worth, and yet any father, any mother knows that's not how you calculate value. Value is determined not by on-paper worth, not by objective outside appearances. Value is determined by the one who loves. Value is determined by the owner and how much they love. Just ask any parent who's driven an hour to retrieve a lost blankie or teddy. Last week, I jumped into a freezing cold mountain stream to retrieve a penny that was clearly part of lost pirate treasure. We, we do things because they are loved and valued. Ask any economist who's trying to wrap his mind around the Beanie Baby craze of the 1990s. It's not the cost of production, it's how much somebody will pay in auction for this little stuffed animal. Value is determined by the owner, by the one who loves. 
not by any objective standard. And so, when we think of value, we look at the Father in particular. The Father is uniquely equipped to judge and determine the value. Now, we're used to, when we read this very popular parable, we're used to thinking of the Father as God, and with very, very good reason. Uh, we'll get to that in a second. The Father is a beautiful re re reflection of our Heavenly Father. And yet, in the, in the context in which Jesus tells this succession of parables, notice verse 4, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Verse 11, what woman having 10 silver coins, or verse 8, having 10 silver coins. And then verse 11, we get to a certain man had two sons. Given this progression, we as the audience are expected to put ourselves in the father's shoes. Jesus is saying it is the normal and right response for any father, however flawed, any mother, however uh, flawed, to desire restoration. When we start to, to view things that way, when we start to put ourselves in the Father's shoes, to be honest, I think the story opens up and we start to see some beautiful complexity in the story. The, the older I get and the older and more independent my children get, the more I relate and sympathize with the Father. And I start to recognize the difficult situations he must have been in. We don't even know, for starters, if he made the right decision in dividing his inheritance. Was that even a good choice? In fact, the Jewish sage Ben Sirah, writing about 200 years before the time of Jesus, actually wrote that it is a very foolish thing to give your inheritance while you're still alive. And so had the father done a foolish thing and then spent years regretting his mistake? Or had he made the best decision he could make in the moment that he made it, hoping that perhaps financial independence would lead to responsibility in his reckless son? Or had he been playing favorites, doting on his younger son like Jacob with Joseph in the Old Testament? Had he accommodated the whims of a demanding son for the sake of peace in his household and taken the compliance of his older son for granted? While we're on the subject, did the father really have no opportunity to tell his older son about the party until it was already underway? Now, I'm not here to tear apart the father or demean his character or psychoanalyze him or anything like that. That's, that's not the point of the parable. But, but it is the fact that as we look at it, we realize we have a very potentially imperfect person doing, hopefully, we think the best he can in the moment. And really struggling. But Jesus' point in all of this is that for all of his potential flaws, for all of his potential weaknesses, the Father knows the value of lost things. He knows the immeasurable worth and value of what is lost more than anyone else in the world can. And Jesus' point is, which of you fathers don't know that? Which of you mothers? We all do it. As weak and as flawed as we are, we know value. And now here's where it becomes helpful to see the Father as a, a reflection of God. Because God does whatever we do the best to do, God does that perfectly. God has 
perfect, overflowing love, unqualified forgiveness, immense, lavish grace. It's the generous grace of the Father that holds the story together and holds this family together. When the younger son loses sight of this grace, he falls into slavery to disobedience. And when the older son loses sight of this grace, he sees his obedience as slavery. Verse 29, I've been slaving for you all these years. And Jesus says, can, we, can you just take that natural parental love you have, as flawed and as fallen as it is, and now can you see through my eyes the immeasurable value of the lost ones around you? There are fathers and mothers in this room today, and I don't mean literally. I mean people who know how to see value. There are some of you that the Lord is teaching to have the eyes of a father and see value where others don't. Most of us in this room know or love a prodigal, whether a child, a parent, a spouse, a friend. And this parable, it holds out the hope of restoration. Uh, prodigals do come home every day. But it doesn't give us any guarantees. That's not what it's about. Jesus is not addressing a crowd of parents worried about their lost children. He is addressing a group of Pharisees who are judging the sinners who are coming in in repentance. And he says, you fathers, you mothers, you close friends, you know the value of what is lost. You can enjoy, you can imagine the joy of restoration. Could you just for a moment experience even a fraction of the joy that I experience in seeing my lost ones come to me. How often, friends, do we look around us with the wrong eyes, seeing scum and riffraff and liberals and extremists and lost causes and sinners and the sexually immoral instead of the lost ones who may or may not come in repentance but who are no less valuable in the eyes of the one who loves them. Can you earnestly seek the res restoration and repentance of others with the same energy that you would seek that of your own son? So value is determined by love. And Jesus invites us to look with the loving eyes of a father. Let's zoom out to the next surprise. The second surprise in all three of these parables is the high cost of recovery. And, and it's almost comical, to be honest. Notice the, the shepherd has a hundred sheep. So a, a wealthy, successful shepherd loses one, and he leaves the 99 in the open country. So safe, but by no means secure. He has no idea how far he has to go, how long he'll be away, what might happen in the meantime. It's tremendous High cost. This is bad business practice. And yet cost is determined by value, not objective or relative worth. Arguably, the cost is even higher for the woman with the coin. A silver denarius is worth about a day's wages, but she spends the entire night working for it. Now, now maybe I'm looking with sort of modern Western capitalistic eyes, but if you calculate the cost of her time, spending the entire night looking for it, and then, of course, we have to add in the cost of oil, which was a luxury, so oil for a lamp for the entire night, 
And then just for kicks, let's throw in the cost of the refreshments for the party that she throws when she finds it. She's probably spent that entire denarius just to get it back. But that's, that's just not quite how things work in the world of Jesus' parables or in the kingdom economics. You see, lost things are meant to be recovered. When we value something, we pay the cost gladly to get it back because cost is determined by the value that we put on it. Put another way, we know the value of something when we see how much somebody will pay for it. We see this principle most clearly with the younger son, the so-called prodigal. Maybe that's you this morning. I don't know. Maybe you feel far from home or far from God. Maybe you're not even trying to be actively rebellious, but somehow you always come across looking like the black sheep. Or maybe you are wanting to rebel. Or maybe you're trapped in sin that only you know about. One way or another, whether it's the looks you get from others or the look you give yourself in the mirror, your value is in doubt. If that's you this morning, my prayer, my earnest prayer and desire is that you would know the tremendous cost that has already been paid for your restoration. You see, the interesting thing about the so-called prodigal is that since the earliest interpreters of the New Testament, the very earliest Christians have noticed the, the striking similarities with Jesus. Now, we can't push it too far. This is not meant to be some sort of an allegory, but it's interesting to note that we have a beloved son who leaves his father's wealth and home to go to a distant place. He loses everything. He experiences hunger, shame, even a sort of death, and then is raised to life and comes back to joy and celebration. That should sound familiar. The parallels are striking, but so are the differences, and, and we can't let go of that. You see, the prodigal left to find himself by chasing after desires. Jesus forsook his own desires to find you, and he's still chasing after you. Your value is nothing more and nothing less than the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. That is the cost that was paid for you, so that is what you are worth. Whatever you see in the mirror, whatever you hear from other people. I knew a man I was privileged to minister to as a pastor, and he was so trapped in the cycles of sin that he couldn't see a way out. And in fact, he didn't want to see a way out. He was too embarrassed to ask for help, too tired to keep fighting, and frankly, too comfortable with his sin to even want to fight anymore. But the word he received from God was, you are worth more than that. You are too valuable to remain lost. The cost for your restoration has already been paid. If you only knew the way that God values you, you would know that you are worth the effort you have to put in with God's help to learn to live the life that you're worthy of. You are too valuable not 
to seek help in your addictions. Too valuable to not repent. It may take time. You have a lifetime of habits to unlearn. But the cost is already paid. The joy of restoration awaits you. So why not embrace it? If that's you, I want, to I want you to find one of the fathers that I just addressed, one of the mothers, those who know how to see value and say, help me understand the cost. So, value is determined by love. Cost reveals that value. Finally, joy. And this is the biggest surprise in the parables, and, and it gets more comical yet. The disproportionate joy that the finder expresses. You see, it's bad business if you're a shepherd to go around telling everybody that you lost a sheep. But he just can't hold it in. And, and there's absolutely no indication in the story that the sheep is hurt or can't walk. So it is utterly unnecessary to put it up on his shoulders. It makes a great picture. You know, it's on all our Christian postcards and everything. But it's utterly unnecessary in this parable. And yet the shepherd is just so happy. He picks it up and embraces it. It is, it is very, very unwise for a woman to go around telling people that she has coins and sometimes loses them, and yet she can't hold it in. I, I just have to tell this story. One of my sons is, is very into pirates, and he has a pirate piggy bank that we have been taking all across um, from Belgium, all across America, and not too long ago on an airplane, he, he had it in his backpack, and he sits down to the nice lady next to him. He says, I've got a lot of money in there. And the very nice lady very wisely says, I don't think you're supposed to go around telling people that. <laughs> and yet, joy and celebration make us do strange, silly things because we can't keep the joy in. It's the father, the dignified patriarch, setting aside all dignity to run and embrace his son and then throw a banquet for the entire town, essentially airing his dirty laundry to the entire village. There's no hiding the family scandal when everybody's eating veal and the cake says, welcome home, son. Everybody knows what's going on. And yet, joy increases with value and with cost. And that's the kind of interesting thing. You see, if the shepherd had just miscounted his sheep and then counted again and got it right, there, there would have been tremendous relief, but not a party. If, if the woman had lost her coin and then found it in the pocket of her other skirt, there, there would have been relief, um, but no celebration. If the son had gone through a rough patch, but then come out okay, the, the dad would be glad and maybe take everybody out for ice cream, but there's not going to be fattened calf on the menu. But somehow, in the strange economy of our psychology, and the Spirit of God, joy increases with the cost. It's, it's just good marketing. Interestingly, this is why General Mills stopped putting powdered eggs in their cake mixes. It's not just because the fresh eggs make the cake taste better, but it's because people felt more satisfied for having to do some of the work. When we invest, when we pay a little bit more cost, we receive some of the joy back. Augment that a thousand times, and that's the joy of the Father. But sadly, the older brother is missing out, watching the party, sitting out in the field in the dark and adding up the costs. There's the fattened calf, there's the skin of wine, there's the vegetables we grew. He's coming with the big plate, 
He's coming with the bigger one. She's coming back for seconds, adding up the costs but refusing to enter in, refusing to embrace them and thus embracing the joy. Now, it's my guess that in this room, most of us probably relate to the older brother, the obedient one who always followed the rules, more or less, but every once in a while feels overlooked or taken for granted by God, by the church, by family. I love being a missionary. I've served in Japan and now serving in Europe, and I thank God for calling me into this service, but there are days when I feel like Isaiah, Isaiah 65, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a contrary people who do not listen, who walk in a way that is not good. And sometimes, if I'm totally honest, I ask God, how come obedience for me means going away when others get to stay? I'm sure all of you have experienced something like that. How come I have obeyed you, I have been faithful, and yet they get the blessing? How come everyone else gets fatted calf and I don't even get goat or chicken? Before we discuss that further, it's worth noting that played in a major key instead of a minor, the older brother's story, too, is like that of Jesus, the heir of heaven the perfect and obedient son, the one who, though he was a son, took the form of a slave, Philippians 2.7. And recall that in this story, the inheritance has already been divided, so technically everything that's left belongs to the older brother, the fattened calf that's roasted, the robe, the sandals, the wine, the very house that the son is welcomed into. All of it belongs to him. Jesus knows the cost intimately. But unlike the older brother in the story, Jesus not only sees the value of the lost, but he embraces the cost willingly, and so he can embrace the joy. After all, that's what the Pharisees are criticizing him for. He's at a party with sinners. But he can party because he counted the cost and was willing to pay it. For some of us, we need to learn that it is costly to welcome sinners into a church, but there's joy in it. And for those of us who relate to the older son, the taken-for-granted son, there is some comfort in knowing that Jesus, too, knows what it's like. He saw his kingdom trampled by sinners. He paid the price to clean up somebody else's mess and then do it again. But even more importantly, what I want you to hear this morning, you older brothers, older sisters, is that God came looking for you. That's another surprise in this parable. The shepherd goes looking for the sheep. The woman goes looking for the coin. The father does not go looking for the missing son. Maybe that's another of his shortcomings. Or maybe that's the difference between sheep and sons. You can't always helicopter over your children. But he does go searching for the older brother. He goes out into the field in the dark. Because the older brother is lost too. 
And I want you to hear that, you who feel overlooked by God or by the church. God is looking for you, too. Your presence is necessary and your absence is palpable. It's just not a party without you. Earthly fathers and earthly mothers, the church here on earth may fail you, but God sees you and seeks you and sits beside you and says, my child, we are always together and all I have is yours. And I sometimes wonder in that verse if there's maybe just a subtle rebuke. All I have is yours, including that goat that you wanted. I sometimes wonder, what if the, younger, the older brother had just asked for a goat? You see, maybe he was, okay, we'll step into psychoanalyzing again. Maybe he was overreacting. He sees the brother asking too much, and so he proves his obedience by not asking at all. It can happen. Some of us know our righteousness and our, our obedience by what we don't do instead of what we do. And in fact, I think my relationship with God has grown tremendously when I've learned to start asking Him. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying God always gives what I ask. This story of all of them in the Bible ought to tell us that we should not get whatever we want when we ask from God. I've been told no plenty of times. But even in being told no, there's a dialogue with God and it protects us from bitterness when I've at least asked and maybe then I can ask why. And when we are told yes, there's a safeguard against pride and self-indulgence because I recognize what I get is a gift from God and not something that I got for myself. You see, the older brother knows the cost, but he's, he's missing out on the joy and starting to ask God is sometimes one of those steps to help us recognize the value, the cost to embrace them and so experience joy. So fathers and mothers, know the value of those around you. Know the cost. Um, brothers, know the cost that has already been paid and the intrinsic value it gives you. Older brothers, know the joy that is rightfully yours and ask God for it. This is one of the best-known stories in the entire Bible. And it's not just because we're all prone to lose retainers or the car keys or our wallet. It is charged with emotion at every level. We can all relate to it. But it's not primarily about repentance. That's important. And don't hear me wrong. If you are a sinner, come to God on your knees in repentance. It's not primarily about forgiveness. Don't get me wrong, that's important. If you need to forgive someone, do it and ask God for the grace to do it. It's not even primarily about hypocrisy, although let us all every day repent of our hypocrisy. It's about joy. It's about a party. The chapter begins with Pharisees on the outside looking in on a party and not joining in. It ends the same way with a brother sitting in the dark looking at a party in his own house. And the curtain goes down, and we'll never know if he goes in or not. It's up to you. How does it end? Will we rejoice when people who are different from us enter our church? People who change the culture or the style of music. Will we rejoice when people require extra grace 
and maybe talk too much and do things differently? Will we rejoice when their dramatic testimonies outshine ours? Will we, we rejoice when they're repent, in their repentance? Will we rejoice that they repent even when sanctification is messy and slow and they don't fit in just yet? Sadly, it is messy. Many will come through our church doors wanting their sins to be accepted rather than forgiven, and it's difficult to walk them through the difference. And it's messy in church. But the best way to learn to recognize true repentance is to start practicing it. And so if the joy of restoration is lacking in your life, ask God to show you the immeasurable value of those around you to give you a father's eyes. Ask him for help to embrace the cost, to share love and kindness with those around. But most of all, practice your own restoration, coming back to the father every day and saying, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. And yet, by the grace of your son and his blood, I am. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your lavish love and abundant grace. We are not worthy to be called your daughters and sons. Give us the eyes that you yourself have to see the love and tremendous value that you have on others. And give us most of all the grace to repent and come to you day by day, seeking your love and seeking to show it to those around. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.